0: Listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. to equip the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. We, as a church here at South Point, so this morning we're going to be looking at, continuing to look at the book of Luke. We'll be in chapter 18, and we'll look at that in just a moment. We're going to celebrate by singing songs to God and our flow of services. We talk about the fact that God is holy. We are sinners. Jesus saves us, and then Jesus sends us. And so this morning, we're not just going to look at information from the book of Luke. Uh, our goal is for us to be transformed, not simply informed by the word of God. And so that's why we have the word of God right here. And hopefully you have your copy of that this morning. If you don't, I'm sure you can download an app. Um, you can uh, look at most of the passages that are going to be on the screen. But if you are new here or if you have not received one of these Luke journals, uh, we've been giving these away as we've been going through the book of Luke. And we still have several chapters left. But if you have not received a Luke journal, do you just want to can you just raise your hand? We're giving we have plenty of these copies. Raise your hand, and Jeremy's gonna bring one around to you. Keep your hand up. Even if today's your first, first Sunday, we'll give you one free of charge. This is our gift to you, besides the finished work of Jesus Christ. So uh, we have these Luke journals, and so we're gonna be in chapter 18, looking at the first 34 verses today. Before we jump into Luke, I want us to look at Hebrews chapter 11. And so this morning as we look at uh, these first 34 verses some theologians would say that Hebrews 11:6 is uh, a summation of chapter 18 in Luke. And so here's what Hebrews chapter 11 here's what the author of Hebrews says. And we're going to be talking about faith this morning. And we've been talking about this idea that we're in this already not yet. That we look back at the finished work of Christ on our behalf, and we look forward to his second return that has been promised. And right here, we're in this kind of in-between state. We have these highs that are representative of the kingdom of healing, of redemption, but then we have these lows. We're still experiencing death. We're still in the midst of sin. And we look forward to the eternal hope of Christ. And so Christ came and he began this already not yet part of the kingdom. He came and introduced this with his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and we begin the church age. And so in the middle of this redemptive history of creation, fall, redemption, that's where we are, this church age, and we're looking forward to restoration. We have here Luke chapter 18. Before we get there, Hebrews chapter 11. The first three verses say this. So this faith is is looking backwards and is looking forwards. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen today was not made out of things that are visible. Now we're going to jump down to verse number six right there in Hebrews 11. Here's the the part that summarizes chapter 18 in Luke. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So our goal is to draw near to God this morning. If you go to chapter 12 of Hebrews, it says this, therefore, looking forward, and, and we know this chapter 11, going into chapter 12, we call this the hall of faith. Those who have gone before us, chapter 12 begins like this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus. We've looked at so many other things this week. May we as the people of God look to the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So knowing that's where we are, now we can look back, at Luke chapter 18. So if you go there with me, we begin in, in verse number one. And we see here we have um, five different vignettes. And so I'm going to preach through these vignettes and we're going to interlace these with uh, a call to worship, a call to confession, with songs, with communion. And then we'll be sent out with a benediction. So it, it looks a little bit different today. But he begins here in chapter 18 and we see first the, the, this parable of the powerful judge and the penniless widow. So in verse number one, This is an interpreter's dream, by the way. Most of the times when we have parables, we get to the end and Jesus is like, yeah, mic drop. And the disciples and the crowds are like, we don't know what that means. And Jesus is like, yeah, but I'm coming back later to tell you about it. And they're like, okay. But notice in verse number one here, he actually tells us what this parable is about. He says, and he told them a parable to the effect that, here it is, they ought always to pray and not lose heart. That's the point of this parable, praise God. He doesn't do this very often, but we're really glad when he does. Check out verse number two. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. This powerful judge. He he doesn't care anything about God. Verse three. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man... Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now, there are a few ways to grease the wheels of an unjust judge. One of those is you can play the money card. Hey, you can pay him off. Well, this widow is broke. She can't do that one of those is to play the power card. Like you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. This widow has no power to play. So she just becomes incredibly persistent. She keeps asking him, it's like how your kids uh, take you hostage if you're walking through the grocery store. Can I please have some candy? Can I please have a toy? And they're just like, you're like, "No, no, 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 you can't. Well, can I please? And finally you give in. You're like, okay, because of your persistence, you can have whatever you want, but I'm not happy about it. That's what this judge is doing. And there are some things that we can be persistent about that are bad things. There are some things that we can be persistent about that are good things. The point here is this woman was persistent. Bad persistence is um, a stalker who is, is looking for a girlfriend, I'm going I'm to be persistent until she finally tells me yes. Bro, you're going you're to get your tail thrown in jail. That, that's not how persistence in the good sense works. Good persistence is sticking hard and making it through school, um, hunkering down with an instrument. That's good persistence, all right? So we, ha- we have here, we don't know if this is great persistence or not, but it's persistence either way. So this woman is persistent. Verse number six. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. What the judge said is, okay, I'll give you justice because you wouldn't stop. Verse 7. And here's the crux of this. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Now, is Jesus here, is he, is he commendating commending? the unjust judge in his injustice? No, he's not saying, hey, injustice is okay. What he's saying is, it's this argument from lesser to greater. He's saying, if an unjust judge will provide justice, how much more will I, the creator and lover of your soul, your father, how much more will I pour out justice if you will simply persist in asking me, persist in asking me, that's what he's saying here. The father will hear your, hear the cry of whom? The question is always, does God hear the, the prayer of those who aren't saved? He hears you because he knows all things. But what is, the, what is the prayer that God is going to answer here? The prayer of the elect. Those who are his children. And that children image brings to mind the, the picture of God as our father. It's really difficult for me to tell my kids no, especially when they're persistent. And God is saying the same thing. Be persistent in your asking. Will he delay over them any longer? Verse number eight, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Here's the equation for us this morning. Persistence plus patience equals perseverance. Persistence plus patience, waiting there, equals perseverance. So as we persevere in the faith until Christ comes, Jesus asks this question, will he find those who are persistent and those who are patient as we persevere until the end? And that's the question for us this morning. Are we people who believe in him that he is coming again? Are we people who have faith in him? If, if we notice here, this is, this is a bridge between chapter 17, which looked at Christ's second coming, the complete fulfillment of the kingdom, and here, chapter 18. He says, In light of the kingdom that is coming in all of its fullness, be persistent in your praying. Be patient in pleading the heart of a good father. We should be praying for his kingdom to come in all of its fullness. We have here but a shadow but an inkling of all the power, of all the forgiveness. The reason that the kingdom is coming is because of Christ, because of his sacrifice. And so we can ask in his power. We can ask for justice. We can ask for peace, for healing. We can ask for salvation for the lost. We can ask for unity among his people. I have several passages, and then we're going to spend a few moments praying and pleading the heart of the Father, but here are some passages I, uh, that I was reading through this week, just to bring to mind the Father wants to answer you in these back in Luke chapter eleven, we saw this, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you, seek, and you will find, knock, and it will be open to you for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Romans chapter twelve, Paul writes this: "I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice." holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And in other words, may your prayers be conformed to the image and to the likeness and to the character of God. And so in those things that we ask, may we be continually be conforming and transformed to what it means to be in Christ. That by testing By persevering, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul writes again in Philippians chapter 4, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We see here in James chapter 1, he begins, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double minded, unstable in all of his ways. So, how are we asking, church? With persistence, with patience? James continues in chapter 4 in verse number 2. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. In other words, you don't have unity. You don't have peace in your homes. You don't have connection and relationship with your spouse because you do not ask. And lastly, in James chapter 5, he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So, this morning, church, we're gonna pray for just a few minutes. This is our chance to, to pray before we uh, pick up and sing and expressing our hearts to God. But I want us to express our hearts to God in prayer. And so, I want us just for a few minutes to be praying for something. I, think of something that maybe you haven't been as persistent as you need to be in praying for it. One of those things that we just talked about. Maybe there's something in your life and you, not, have not have, you haven't been as patient as you should have been. Ask the Spirit to bring those things to mind. And we're going to pray for those things. And I would encourage you to pray out loud, just for a few minutes, patiently, persistently, pleading the heart of the Father. Because this is not just information that we take and we say, hey, thanks for this, thanks for this parable, Jesus. really good. The point of the parable is for us to pray. And so we're going to do that as God's people. Music's going to play a little bit. Uh, Y'all are going to pray. I'm going to come down. We're going to pray individually. And then Caleb is going to close us out in prayer. So let's plead the heart of the Father. Whatever is on your heart this morning, whatever needs to be on your heart, whatever has been on your heart, let's persistently, with perseverance, plead the heart of the one who loves you.
1: Father God, as we lift up our hearts to you in prayer, Lord, we're thankful for who you are. We're thankful that you are the God who created the universe, the God who created the world, and yet you're a God who, like a father to his child, wants to listen to our hearts, asks us to to persevere and be persistent in our prayers. Lord, we confess that far too often We don't turn to you with our needs. We don't turn to you with our heart. Maybe we turn to you at times out of obligation or out of fear, but I pray that you would today help us to turn to you as sons and daughters to a loving father. Lord, encourage us in prayer. Help us to be passionate, persistent, Lord, help us to see the ways that you're answering our prayers, God. Whether it's the way that we want them to be answered or not. And Lord, give us trust in a loving Father. Lord, we also want to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are praying to you today, who are seeking you in worship who turn turning their hearts towards you, God. And we, we pray that you would help their uh, ministries to expand as, as your kingdom expands, God. Lord, we wanna pray specifically for, for our brothers and sisters in Christ here in our own community, Lord, McDonough Church and Pastor Jake Williams. Lord, we, w- we wanna pray for our brothers and sisters at South Point Locust Grove. Lord, we wanna pray for, for those churches and we wanna pray for their pastors as they bring your word today. And we wanna pray that... Um, that people would come to faith in you through those ministries and through those churches. We want to pray that disciples will be built and your name will be made great. Lord, we want to pray uh, that your kingdom would expand and people would come to faith and find freedom, find hope and deliverance in you here in McDonough and in Locust Grove and in this area. Lord, we also want to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. We want to pray for the missionaries that we support. We also want to pray that you would raise up People to, to boldly declare the good news to people who've never heard the gospel or, or to whole populations of people that uh, there are no believers in those communities, in those cities. It's hard for it is for us to believe, God, there are people all over the world who've never heard the truth about Jesus. We pray specifically today for the Saroa people in Taiwan or there's nobody that we are aware of uh, that know of uh, Jesus no religion that they really practice at all. And so there's, there must be no hope for so many people in that community, God. We pray that someone would take the message of the good news of Jesus to them to, to help them see what good news it is and to find that hope that we have and that we hold so dear. Lord, we pray for our own hearts today that you would continue to turn our hearts towards you. Lord, we pray for Pastor Michael, for our, uh, our band as they lead worship. We pray that you would, um, your spirit would work and move through through them and into our hearts to make us more like Jesus and to to help us to love you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: So we pick up in verse number 9 of Luke 18, and we see here the second and the third vignette. We see first the self-righteous Pharisee and the self-aware tax collector. So notice the contrast here that we see between these two. Verse number nine, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Notice that first verse right there. In verse number nine, works righteousness will always lead to contempt for others. Those who trusted in themselves, they had contempt, hatred, hatred, Uh, A self aggrandizing comparison to others verse number 10 we see these two two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector now the Pharisees are known for their piety for their self-righteous acts they're known for their devotion for their religious rigor Uh, and a tax collector was just low lowest of the low they were actually Roman appointed Jews who stole from uh, the inhabitants. Nobody liked tax collectors. They were on the same socioeconomic level as traitors, as thieves, as oppressors. Verse 11, the Pharisee, so notice the Pharisee, standing by himself prayed this. Notice how many times he says, I, in this prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Verse 13, the prayer of the tax collector. But the tax collector standing far off. So he wouldn't even approach the middle of the temple. This standing far off represents humility. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. And literally there in the Greek, there, there's, a, uh, there's an article before sinner. It's, God be merciful to me, the sinner. There's emphasis there. Look at how much I've sinned. Now, which one of us, if we were to compare ourselves, which category do we mostly fall into? Because when we think that we're better than other people because of pretty much anything, the way that we act, the way that we look, the things that we do compared to them, we fall into the category of Pharisee. It's also true that we fall into the category of Pharisee when we think that the Lord is not happy with us because of something that we've done. And so we run to fix that and make it better. So our standing before God and the way that we treat others, is either like that of the Pharisee, completely dependent on us, self-righteousness, or we can come before the Lord with the attitude and the heart of the tax collector. And he says, be merciful to me. And literally this Greek word is, everybody say helestheti that's a that's a verb an action um, conjunction of the noun which means mercy seat so he's literally saying be mercy seated toward me the sinner now the mercy seat is important because the mercy seat is on top of the ark of the covenant the ark of the covenant represented the law the perfect just presence of god Covered in gold, and above it were two cherubim, and right there on the top of it is the mercy seat. And so once a year during the Day of Atonement, the priests would come in, and they would make a sacrifice there, and blood would cover the mercy seat. They would take a perfect spotless lamb and make atonement for all of the people for the sins of that year, therefore finding forgiveness. And the sinner here says, be mercy seated toward me because I need to be washed. I need to be covered. I need the perfect righteousness of someone better than I. Notice what Jesus says. Verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. That justification, that word justified, that's the cornerstone of all Christian faith. Without it, we're sunk. Justified literally means to be declared righteous in the sight of God. Are we declared righteous because because the mercy seat has been shown toward us or because we think we're better than somebody else? I'm better than someone else because I do this. Or let me earn God's favor with this. Or are our lives representative of building our life upon his level. He has done for us, even though we are unworthy. And that's where this third vignette, this next short passage here comes in. It says, let the little children come to me. We see here this comparison of curmudgeons, which are grumpy old people and children. In verse number 15, Jesus says, uh, or Luke says, now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, these curmudgeons, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, these parents, saying, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, we can go a lot of different ways when we talk about kids, but just know this our culture, when we look at kids mostly, we say, Look at that sweet little angel. They're so innocent, they're so sweet until 3 o'clock a.m. Amen? Some of you new parents know that. But, but we, we romanticize children, but not in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, they were seen as like a lower social rung. They were unworthy of anything. If a kid couldn't make it in life, it's just like, ah, well, we didn't have the money to feed them. We didn't have the money to send them to school. We didn't have a place for them to sleep. It stinks, but they're gonna be on the street. They were seen as unworthy, almost As worthless but not quite but here's what jesus is saying he's not saying just come to me in simple faith he's saying no a child has no spiritual resume a child has nothing to say well look at how good i am look at all of these spiritual works that i've done no a child is unworthy and such as those who receive the kingdom of god unless you come to christ in unworthiness and receive His justification that's the only way that we can be declared righteous is with the mercy of God he says come as a child come knowing that you don't deserve anything that I'm offering you and then you will enter into the kingdom we receive justification because of his righteousness because of his work because Christ humbled himself to the point of death because of his mercy because he is worthy because in the midst of his worthiness in heaven, he loved us so much to come down and to identify with us in life, in death, in resurrection. That's the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So may we as unworthy individuals come to him as dependent children running to our father, looking to him. We come to him for forgiveness. We come to him for life. So this morning, I'm, I'm gonna read this call to confession, and it gives us a chance to step back into the presence, knowing that Jesus Christ is faithful to forgive us. And may we be like this tax collector here, saying, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. So this is our chance to put this into practice. Here is our call to confession this morning, and then we're gonna confess our sins to God. When we come into the holy presence of God, our own humanity is laid bare. When we stand in the living presence of truth, our own falsehood is revealed. People of God, let us acknowledge who we are and ask our ever-present God to forgive us. So church, let's do that now, confessing our sins to God. So we get here to a really familiar passage that most of us know, this story of the rich young ruler. And some of these stories through Luke we're not as familiar with, but this one we probably are. So we see here, picking up in verse number 18, we see here the the contrast between the rich young ruler and the riches of the king. So verse number 18, a ruler asked him, real quick before I jump in, some people don't, don't go down to this rabbit hole. I did this in college. It was a terrible decision. I haven't reached the bottom of it yet. But some folks would say this could be the Apostle Paul before he was converted. This may have been Saul. Anyway, that's for free. You don't have to tithe on that. So this ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this man had everything. This rich young ruler had everything that we would say that we wanted. That our culture says, hey, this is a good thing to have. Most of us would say, yeah, I would love to have more money. Amen? Yeah. Uh, I would would love to have more power, more prestige, more popularity, more skills. This this guy had everything that the world would offer. Some of us, I wish I had more youth. I wish I was younger. Yeah, I see some of you. Yeah, I do. My my five head does, you know, it's scooting back. But notice he is still not satisfied because there's something else that he needs. Everything in life has not satisfied yet. He had no assurance of eternity. He had everything in his life and had no assurance of eternity. Even this man's work righteousness, it led to anxiety. So we see uh, how before this works righteousness of the Pharisee led to contempt for others. It always will. Works righteousness will always lead to anxiety in our lives. We never know if we're good enough or if we've done enough to please God. He's sitting here. So he, even though some of us, you know, as we think about this or read this or have heard this before, oh, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I imagine this man is actually coming pleading before the Lord. Good teacher, please, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Nothing else has satisfied me. Jesus says to him in verse number 19, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is saying, yeah, you came to the right place. You asked the right question. Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't begin with, okay, here's the solution. Let me give you the answer. So many times we're like, I'm Bible answer man. Let's do it. Jesus wants to get to the heart of the problem. Jesus also is not saying, no, no, I'm not good, only God is good. He's saying, "No, you've come to ask me because you understand that I am God. Here, Jesus is claiming deity. He's not shirking the deity responsibility. He's saying, yes, you've come to ask me and I know. And by the way, it's not, eh, if you're good enough. Jesus doesn't grade goodness on a curve. He's saying, I am good, I am God. And there's only one good and it's me. You've come to the right place. Verse number 20. You know the commandments. Jesus is here speaking to him. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And this man, this rich young ruler said, all of these things I have kept from my youth. Jesus, I've I've already done all these things. I'm still lacking. I'm still wanting. Verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to the man, but one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Notice if we look back at verse number 20, which part of the law of the 10 commandments does Jesus uh, invoke on him to obey? It's the second half. Because what does the first half say? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall worship God alone. Jesus here is saying, yeah, you've got all of the physical, tangible things, but you've missed the first part of the commandments, which is to have no other God. He says, yeah, your hands look great. You haven't done all these things, or let's just assume that you haven't done these things. Jesus says, you're missing the heart of the law, what's happening inside of you. Jesus essentially is saying, what you are doing out here with your hands, whether it's good or bad, That is not your biggest problem. Your sin, friends, this morning, your sin is not your biggest problem. Your your biggest problem is not your gluttony. It's not your pornography. Your your sin is uh, not your anger. Your sin is not lying. Those things are not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is idolatry. Your biggest problem is not putting Christ in the proper place of your life. Your biggest problem is not, oh man, I've committed adultery, I've looked at this, I've done this, I've stolen, I've I've coveted. Your biggest problem goes back to the very first and second commandment. You shall have no other God before me. Jesus here is speaking to the heart. He says, the issue is not that uh, you're worshiping me and these things, but that you're worshiping these things. Turn your eyes from these things and worship the one true God. Jesus here wants to destroy the idols of this man. He wants to destroy these idols. These idols in our lives. And and we, again, if if we want to put ourselves into uh, this story, we would here be the rich young ruler. Now, we would say, "Yeah, yeah, but I'm not as rich as the guy who's just richer than me, right? But by and large, we have an incredible amount of resources compared to the world. An incredible amount. Think about what you're putting your hope and your trust in. where you're hoping is going to bring you satisfaction. What you're hoping is going to bring you life. Friends, those things will never provide what you are hoping. They will never provide what only the kingdom of God can provide. And that's the love of God the Father. And so while our heart, they run to these things and they desire these things. These are but small little gods. And we take these tiny little gods, uh, Augustine said, and then John Calvin stole it, but Augustine said that our heart is an idol factory. And so we, we, we're, we're always looking for something to worship, and we take these little G gods and we put it on the throne of our heart, whether we have it or we don't. And we're like, that's, that's what is going to give me satisfaction and hope and security and safety and significance and meaning and purpose in life if I could just have this. And Jesus is saying, man, he's not saying, hey, let's remove that idol. Let's tear that idol down because as soon as we do, as soon as I stop lusting, as soon as I stop cheating, as soon as I stop lying, we put another little G God back on the throne of our heart. Jesus is saying, it's not about what you're doing with your hands. It's what's, about, it's, it's what's happening inside of here. Your issue is idolatry, and the way to fix bad worship is to replace it with good worship. It's to look at Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ is on the throne of your heart, that's going to affect how you live your life. Then all of those other gods, which are mostly, by the way, a lot of those things are good things. Because in Luke chapter 14 and verse number 33, what does Jesus say? Some of y'all are like, ah, come on, man, I preached on that several weeks ago. Y'all should memorize that, right? Jesus said, whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciples the context of that is not financial. The context of that is renouncing your family. The context of that is renouncing your work, the things that you value most. And Jesus says, unless you want to lay hold of the kingdom, and it may require you turning your back on all of those other things, which are really good things, your family, good, work, good, money, good, a house, good, car, good, hobbies, good, sports, good. All of those things are good, as long as in their rightful place. The point that Jesus is making here, that he made back in chapter 14, that he made in chapter nine, is this. You cannot fill your hands with the things of this world and the things of the kingdom. So what are you grabbing a hold of and saying, this is my hope, this is my firm foundation, this is my significance, my beginning, and if all else fades, at least I have this. This is all I need. All these other things, good. We can keep these things. Nothing wrong with those. But if it comes down to it, what are we going to choose? The things of this kingdom or the things of Christ's kingdom? Christ says, I may demand of you that you renounce these things. Are we willing to or not? Are we willing to renounce those things for the sake of the kingdom? If you want to know where your idol is, follow your money. What do you spend your money on? And some would say, well, I don't spend money on anything. I, I save up all the money that I can. So your idol may be security for when the stock market further crashes. <laughs> some of you say, man, I, I, I spend money on really good things, on, on, on my wife, or on my kids. Why, why are you doing that? Is it so that you can truly bless them or is it so that they'll look at you as their savior and their provider? What's the heart behind what you're spending your money on? That's what Jesus is addressing here. Some of you say, man, I don't have any money, so I, don't, I can't spend on anything. And I would say, okay, well, let's begin there, and uh, let's figure out how we can uh, best be stewards of what God has given us with our time and skills and resources so that we can invest in others for the sake of the kingdom. But what is your heart? Is it for the things of this world? Or is it for a king that is too big to lay hold of while you hold on to something else? Christ is too big of a king for that. So Jesus says, go, sell everything that you have. He got to the heart of this man. He said, here's what you're worshiping. Here's what you're grasping most tightly. And he says, you can't hang on to this and onto me. How does the man respond? He walks away Sad. think he came to Jesus with a great deal of anxiety and, and hopefulness that he could find satisfaction. But it says that he walks away sad, verse number 23, because he was extremely rich. He walks away sad. He was extremely rich. Here's what's crazy, man. His possessions did not satisfy him any longer. That's why he's coming to Jesus. I need something else but he still could not let go of them. I'm gonna let you take that one home and put it on your fridge somewhere and, and think about that for the rest of the week. We say, oh yeah, yeah I'm, willing, I'm willing to let go of my possessions. I'm willing to be generous. I'm willing, are you doing that? Are you using your time for the sake of the kingdom, your resources, your skills, your conversations, your relationships, your money, your home, your vehicles, the things that God has given you? Well, I would You would if what? If you had more stuff, if you had more money, then you would be generous? This man went away very sad because he was extremely rich. He knew that his possessions would not satisfy, but he held on to them anyway. That's the definition of an idol. That's also probably the definition of insanity, of lunacy. It's like like Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. He has, he has the ring, and he keeps walking around with it with it. And what does he say? "My precious. Is that ring bringing him life? No, it's bringing him what? Death. But he can't let go of it. This man had made the worst transaction of his life. He sacrificed all the riches of the kingdom of God for the small, little, tiny riches of this world. He walks away sad. Verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he becomes sad, said, and, I, and I, Jesus is not here responding like, boom, told you so. He's responding with compassion. He sees that this man as sad. He says this, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus' heart here is breaking for this man. For it is easier, verse number 25, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, Than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. We talked about several chapters ago, the the narrow door that is closing. And the narrow door for the rich has here been reduced to the eye of a needle. So not only is the narrow door difficult to find, not only do we have to remove the things in our lives, he says, but the more stuff you have, the more gravitational pull you have towards your possessions, the more difficult it is for you to get to get into the kingdom. In other words, the more rich you are, the more difficult it is for you to be redeemed. You're like, well, I, it doesn't necessarily say that. No, it, it necessarily does. That's what Jesus says. How difficult it is for a rich man to enter heaven. It's like trying to get a camel, the biggest animal that these folks would have ever seen. there in the Middle Middle East. How difficult it is to get through the, through the eye of a needle. That's how difficult it is for folks like me and you, the rich, to enter heaven. Into the kingdom of God. Verse 26, those who heard it said, (laughs) Then who can be saved? Because these folks thought if you have a lot of stuff, if you were prosperous, then that was the blessing of God on your life. So if the rich can't be saved, then who in the world can be saved? This is what we call the prosperity gospel. If you are rich, then God must have favor on you. Friends, the the crux of the gospel is the blessing of God that is going to come in the future. Not the blessing of God that has come today. Because as we live in this already, not yet, our faith is in the cross and in the resurrection. That's our hope. Not that our bank accounts are going to be full. Not that we're going to drive the nicest cars or fly on the nicest airplanes. Our hope is in that Jesus Christ is going to return In all glory and power, and we get to experience the love of God personally, interrelationally, in person. That's our hope. So these folks are confused. Man, if the rich can't be saved, then who in the world can be saved? Verse number 27. But he said to them, Jesus says to them, what is impossible with men is possible with God. In other words, salvation is impossible for anybody, rich or poor. It's impossible for anybody if it's based on your righteousness. Salvation is impossible unless God does it. And God will save the rich. He will save the poor. He's going to save those from other nations like Caleb just prayed about. He's going to do that. No one is beyond his reach. That's the point of this passage. The point of this passage is not, hey, go sell all of your stuff, be like this guy. The point of this passage is make sure that your faith and your hope and your foundation is in Christ and him alone that he is the owner of everything that you have, that he has first say in all that you possess, in all that he has given you. Verse number 28, we finish this passage here. And Peter says, see, we have left our homes and followed you. Verse 29, and Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. So in other words, we just heard Jesus say, man, no store for yourselves treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. But here he says, we're gonna receive many more times. What are the things that we receive in this life? We receive fellowship, not just with God, but with God's people. We get the chance to come together this morning and say, I'm broken, you're broken, she's broken, he's broken, boom. And we get forgiveness. It's fantastic. We get to fellowship With God's people, we get to be part of a church. We can experience freedom from sin. As the kingdom is being ushered in, Christ brings with it healing and power and redemption. Those are the things that we get today. And Jesus says, the option to that spirit-filled, Christ-exalting life is not just a mediocre life, but it is a condemned life. It is a condemned life. So he says, here are the options. A life that leads to death or a life in Christ. You get to experience life today, not by the world standards, but by kingdom standards. Anything that we choose at the expense of allegiance to Jesus Christ becomes a poison to our souls. Anything that we choose that gets in the way that interferes with our allegiance to Christ becomes a poison. And it leads to death. It is a means of our destruction. The last vignette that we see here, and this still kind of falls under this rich young ruler and the riches of the king, but we see here in verse number 31, these last four verses. And taking the 12, speaking here to his disciples, he said to them, "See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished." Again, and it's already not yet, here's what's going to be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. We understand what he's saying here. He's going to be put on the cross. He's going to die, be put in the ground. But on day number three is what we celebrate every single year at Easter. He's going to be brought back to life by the power of the spear. Verse 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. So we can't blame it on them. We see here the power of God. It was hidden from them. And they did not grasp what was said. The cross is necessary because our works will never be enough. So in light of everything that we've already seen in these first 30 verses, our good works, our righteousness are insufficient. The cross means that our shame, our sin, the wrath of God is taken for us. That's why it was poured out on Jesus Christ so that he can offer forgiveness, so that he can offer life in the kingdom. And he says, have faith. This is what faith, we read it in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number six. This is what faith looks like. This is assurance of what Jesus Christ has done. And we look forward to when he's going to come again. So my question for you this morning is what is what is keeping you from living completely for the king? What is keeping you from living completely for the king. And maybe it's a good thing. It may be a good thing. Like we saw in chapter 14. But it may have the wrong place in your life. And I would plead with you this morning, through the mercy of God, that you would lay hold of Christ. And in order to lay hold of Christ... You must let go of those things. And that requires faith that he is going to satisfy, that he is going to fulfill, that he is going to bring hope and justice and peace and forgiveness. Draw near to him in faith. When we surrender, when we surrender the things of this life, we find true life, eternal life in him. Run to Christ. Look to him. That's my plea this morning.